The Netherlands was occupied for five years by Germany, between May 1940 and May 1945. Its capital city, Amsterdam, was one of the most diverse and liberal cities in Europe. This episode is a look at the occupation from the perspective of various Amsterdamers. Some characters, those whose names you will hear, are real. Their actions during the war are recorded historical events. Otherwise, we have developed characters that we think and hope represent a composition of various experiences that must have been felt by innumerable inhabitants of the city living under Nazi rule. There are countless academic retellings of World War II and the Holocaust already available everywhere. The further away we move from those times, the more the emotions that must have been felt to those at the time are lost to us. So we've taken an approach where we're using present tense narrative to try to place you, the listener, into a world wrought with uncertainty, where choices can mean the difference between life and death. So sit back, put in your headphones, and enjoy listening to what we have decided to call You Are Occupied. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me, the podcast about resistance and rebellion in history, art, and culture. Nazi Germany has been waging war in the East for eight months. It has been clear to most from early on that the re-emerged behemoth would soon be casting its militant gaze westward. The highest Dutch authorities had hoped that the coming war could be avoided, that the country could shelter in the realm of neutrality, as it had done during the last Great War. This time, however, neutrality will provide no shelter. It's all happening so quickly. Jackboots are on the ground. Grey and black vehicles and men are spreading throughout the city. You are under occupation. And you could be anyone. You could be a Jewish businessman or his secretary. You could be a student or a policeman. Maybe you're just the person selling flowers at the market. Or a banker. Or even just a regular delivery boy. In this story, you are each and every Amsterdamer, and whoever you are, under occupation, you will need to make choices. No matter who you are, you consider the possible consequences of your race, or of your appearance. What do they accept as tolerable? What do they not On the ledger of Nazi racial judgment, the ethnic Dutch fall on the accepted side, the Germanic Saxon side. If you are one, then you are a fellow inheritor of Rome and of Charlemagne. You are of the blood and soil, born of this place. If you are just one of those regular pure Aryans, 
you will likely do whatever you can for you and your family to get through whatever this ends up being. High-minded principles of resistance and rebellion will not keep food in the bellies of your children. Only you can do that. Whatever comes, you and they must simply endure and survive. Maybe it will not be so bad, so long as you keep your head down. Perhaps, though, you are someone in this city who, watching the soldiers march and the tanks roll down the main street, welcomes the arrival of the Nazis. If you support the NSB, the Dutch National Socialist Party, your worldview is going to get its opportunity to determine and decide how things go now. You love the sight of these German men goose-stepping past you, alongside hundreds of others. You feel a surge of belonging and righteousness as you hold your right arm out in front of you, alongside everyone else there. Alternatively, as the occupying forces continue to pour in, you might be one of those already organizing some kind of resistance to them. You are a socialist, or a communist, or a rights activist, or you are simply anti-fascist, and as the river of grey uniforms continues to stream into your town, you have already begun organizing the printing of anti-Nazi pamphlets, and thinking about the war of thought and aggression that's arrived. How did it come to this? Where and when did you miss a beat? What are all the things leading up to now that have caused this? And could you have stood up to stop it? But there's no point thinking about what you didn't do. What will you do now? A war over thoughts and ideas has come crashing violently into your world. And if you don't wage it, Who else will? If you are one of Amsterdam's large and entrenched Jewish population, around about 100,000 people, it is likely that your Sephardic or Ashkenazi ancestors had arrived in the city some 300 years before. This is your city as much as anyone's. Everyone has heard the stories coming from Germany over the last seven years or so. There is no uncertainty about the anti-Semitism of the new occupying force. What if you are one of the leading figures in the Jewish community? You now have to stay strong like never before. You must calm the growing anxieties of your people. Or perhaps you are one of the many young Jewish children who, at night, hear but don't quite understand the fearful murmurs of your parents when they think that you are asleep. If you are one of those parents like Otto Frank, who brought his wife and two daughters here from Frankfurt several years before, then your mind is spinning. Your whole family is counting on you to make the best choices for them. You consider your options. Do you hide? How? Do you flee? Where to? In the very limited confines of what the Nazis see as acceptable in a person, many things can make you an undesirable. If you are gay, you have lived here relatively free from prejudice compared to most other places in the world. Your city has had openly gay bars for more than two decades. You've largely been let be, just another member of a very diverse society. You have your world here, which has always been fairly safe. You've known nothing as horrible as what looms before you now. 
But over on the other side of the city, you are someone who was born physically or mentally disabled. You are one of those who the Nazis have deemed unworthy of living. You may or may not be aware of the incredible danger that you are now in. But if you are a person who cares for someone with disabilities, you have likely heard the rumors coming from over the border during the previous year. Rumors of thousands of handicapped people being bussed off and never seen again. Stories of ash with human hair raining down on towns and of families receiving falsified death certificates of their kin on the same day that their kin were taken. You care for someone who will need you now more than ever. A heavy worry sits in the pit of your stomach and that has nothing to do with fear for your own safety. It is not going to go away and it is only going to get heavier. The first months of the occupation only give small hints of the horror that is coming, so still nobody knows for sure. What they do is bureaucratic at first. One day it is suddenly illegal to work in the Dutch air raid defence if you are a Jew. If you are a civil servant and with winter getting closer, towards the end of the year you must tell them whether you are a Jew or not, and you lose your job if you are. As Otto Frank, one day you are no longer allowed to own your own company because you are a Jew. But the law doesn't stop there. Next, you are not allowed to ride a bicycle and you are not allowed to stand on the street between certain times or shop anywhere but at certain places and at certain times. You give control of your company over to your colleague, Joe Kleiman. You have no choice now but to trust him to run what you have worked so hard to build up in this city. Your family is now in perilous danger. You can feel it. You will need to trust Joe Kleiman not only with your business, but also with keeping you and your family safe. As the leaves fall off the trees and the temperatures drop and the first winds of winter arrive, it is these thoughts that consume you. By the start of 1941, all Jews must register with the city, and violence is becoming more frequent and more intense. The NSB, the Dutch Nazis, who are now the only legal party, have packs of young boys and men roaming around, harassing Jewish Amsterdamers. You are one of these boys, and you have been given power and free license to own these streets. You belong to something now more powerful than anything any other of the city's youth can lay claim to. Before, you had nothing. Now, you have everything. It's a cold and foggy February night. Lately, the fighting has increased between groups of young men. Jewish boxing clubs have transformed themselves into street defense units. Lads who cannot stand by as their community is attacked again and again. On this particular night, the taunts and aggression from the NSB youth can be heard from blocks away, sitting threateningly on the heavy fog. Out on the slippery cobblestones of the market square, a group from a local boxing club, mainly young Jewish men, confront the aggressors. The two groups collide. 
you are one of the young Jewish boys who, during the fight, slams a wooden club into the head of an NSB man, aged around 40. He is Hendrik Colt, and he hates you, and he hates your people. He goes down quickly, and then there are many of you laying into him, other boys, your friends, kicking and hitting the man now curled up in a growing pool of his own blood before you. The world suddenly jolts, and you stop your furious assault. You keep staring at his prone form. A moment ago, you wanted to kill him, but now you feel sick. You realize the terrible mistake that you've made. If this man dies, you and your people will pay. You run home through the fog and rush to the bathroom before any of your family sees you. The terror rises in your gut and you sit holding your knees, staring at the broken tile in the corner. You wish you'd made a different choice, but what else were you meant to do? How else were you supposed to react to their hate? The next day, you are an Amsterdam policeman. There is furor in the office and across the whole network of those in power. A noble Aryan man has been hospitalized by Jewish brutes. Together with the German soldiers and police, you and your fellow officers are commanded to go down and cordon off the Jewish district. You don't know what to think, but you are just doing your job. It doesn't feel right, but orders are orders. Henry Colt dies from his injuries. Some days later, German police get involved in a fight down at an ice cream salon in the Jewish district. Some of them are wounded. The next day, you and other officers again are sent into the Jewish neighbourhood. Over the weekend, you assist with rounding up 425 Jewish men. Some of them you recognise from your patrols before the occupation. They are all sent away. You don't know where to. After being a part of the fight that killed Henry Colt, you have been in near paralytic fear in your house, barely leaving your room. You have wanted to tell your parents, tell your friends, run out to the street and shout that everybody should flee, but you have been unable to move. Finally, after a couple of days, early one morning you resolve to go and see your friend. Out on the street, despite the early hour, there are people gathered in many of the shops. The tension and the fear are palpable. You hear the news of the brawl in the ice cream salon, and your gut clenches tighter. Looking up the main street of the district, you are shocked to see a barbed wire fence running across it. On the other side, you can see the empty market square and the old city toll house. They are now a world away. Because you and your people, it seems now, are no longer a part of Amsterdam. As you stand there, the gate to the fence is opened and grey vans and soldiers are moving down the street. There are both German and Dutch police amongst them and they start to move into the shops, returning with people, all young men. You stand immobile, terror-struck. Suddenly, a van pulls up in front of you, and from behind you, you are grabbed on the arm. A heavy Bavarian accent growls at you, in German. Something about getting in the van, and about being Jewish scum. 
Hearing about this roundup the next day, you are an incredulous factory worker and a fierce communist. That's now also illegal. You and many others like you are appalled at the treatment of your fellow Amsterdamers, Jewish men taken away, men whose people are so entrenched in the working class that it is they whose passions and rhetoric have fueled the workers' rights movements here for nearly a hundred years. So, in the evening of the day after this assault on Amsterdam's Jews, you are standing in a crowd of dock workers, tram drivers, and other labourers outside the northern church. It is freezing outside, and you notice the steam coming up off the bodies and out of the angry mouths of the huddled mass. Everybody is outraged and scared. But something must be done. You cannot stand by and allow your fellow workers to be taken away without a whimper. You must protest. You go on strike the very next day. Along with dozens of others, you go to the Fokker factory in the north of the city and march through its halls, making sure nobody is at work. You continue on to the ferry, where crowds of strikers are gathering and cheering. Bands of you make your way to the shipyards in the east to continue your demonstrations. As news of the strike spreads through Amsterdam, more and more people take to the streets, gathering, protesting, singing the communist anthem, the Internationale, and making a stand against the occupiers on behalf of those Amsterdamers upon whom this violence has come. Your Jewish friends, colleagues, neighbours. The next day, more and more people refrain from work. More and more people close down their shops and the strike grows, spreading to nearby towns. The occupiers begin to clamp down with force. The German police shoot into crowds of protesters. The powers that be also use their stranglehold on the city's bureaucracy and administration to force people back to work under threat. By the end of the second day, the strike is over. You feel hopeless, going back to work the following days, rendered impotent under the watchful eye of German soldiers holding machine guns. The biggest building in Amsterdam is the Royal Palace. Before the invasion, you, a man named Adrian Perfors, got a job protecting the building and its contents, just in case of invasion. You spent months doing whatever you could, taking down the elaborately painted ceiling in the main hall, piece by piece, and storing it in the cellar. You also hid the throne of Willem I, and the coronation robe of all Dutch monarchs in a small room, which you bricked up, hiding these symbols of sovereignty safe from the occupiers. After the strike, the Nazis demand that you let them use the building as a place to demonstrate the reassertion of their power. But you only show them the darkest and dankest rooms, telling them that the heating of the building is broken. You've made your choice. You are going to resist. They decide that the building doesn't suit their purposes, and Reichskommissar Arthur Seyss Inquart and the Dutch Nazi party leader Anton Mussert hold their demonstration on the square in front of it instead. Under your watch, the building will be free from being used 
as a tool for Nazi propaganda. Valraven van Hal, known as Wally, is amongst the most elite of Amsterdam society. You are him. And along with your brother, Gijsbert, you are amongst the most respected bankers in the city. You are just the kind of high-class, pure Aryan that the occupiers love. And they will do everything they can to ensure that you feel very little change or uncertainty. You continue mingling amongst and garnering respect from them. Is this such a bad thing? If your world up here remains safe? Yet at some point, you make a choice to resist. And to help others who are resisting too. With backing from the Dutch government in exile, you set up a fund helping the families of Dutch sailors who are abandoned outside the country, stranded since the war began. You were once a sailor, and their need is close to your heart. Soon, you are helping to channel money towards all kinds of resistance causes, newspaper printing, obtaining or forging food stamps, or counterfeit identity cards that don't carry the J for Jew. You and Gijs, working at the Dutch National Bank, begin swapping false banknotes for real ones, day after day, and over the course of several years, take over 50 million guilders from under Nazi noses, which fund the vast majority of resistance activity. 70 years later, this amount will equal around half a billion euros. You, Wally van Hull, are the banker of the resistance. The grind continues, as the war wages on. All summer, you are the boy selling flowers by the big western church. As you have, since you were little. Looking around the market, you see how the people are different. Yellow stars have appeared on the chests of some of your regular customers. Their smiles, which had always been so natural, now seem forced, if they're at all. Everybody and everything is bleak, and just getting bleaker. When winter comes, you normally sell chestnuts, and the winter markets are always a buzz in the lamp-lit early dark. But it isn't the case this year. Everything is grey, and there is no joy. You just can't imagine Amsterdam being happy again. People pretend, but it's all changed. The Jew hunt does not abate now, but intensifies. The leaders of the Jewish community have been forced to form a council and to organise the deportation of their own people. As Otto Frank, different plans to keep your family safe just keep running through your mind, and none of them seem good enough. As each day turns into evening, you fret that everybody makes it home before the curfew that's been enforced on you now. Out on the street, nearby where Otto frets over his family's future, you are one who has exemption to the Jewish curfew. You have worked for a year as a delivery boy, biking parcels, letters and packages around town. Your father also owns a Jewish old person's home, and your job now includes delivering food to those amongst your people who are being held in the city's concert hall, awaiting their deportation. Often, you are delivering the letters that inform them to report to the authorities in the first place. 
You have a permission slip, which means that you can be out after dark. But going home at night, you don't cycle but walk, just so you can stick to the shadows, being constantly scared for your life. No piece of paper will stop the random acts of brutality that you've seen lately. One afternoon, the doorbell rings. It is the local postboy, holding out an official-looking letter, addressed to your daughter, Margot. I'm sorry, Meneer Frank, the boy says shyly, and he quickly turns around and shuffles away to his waiting bike. You open the envelope and read its contents. Your daughter has been officially summoned to go to a work camp in Germany. Your whole body suddenly feels weak and you hold out an arm to prop yourself up against the wall. The time for thinking has passed. You now have to make a decision. All your family's applications for visas to other countries have been rejected. There is nowhere you can flee to. You must hide. The next few days are a whirlwind as you get your affairs into order and prepare your family to leave your home all the while trying to not draw any attention to what you are doing. So early one morning, you tell each member of your family to put on as many items of clothing as they can, because you can't be seen with suitcases. Together, in the pouring rain, you walk through the streets of the city to your office building. There you will hide in a secret room, hidden behind a bookshelf. You have friends who also must hide, a business associate and his family, and they join you a week later. Only four people outside the annex know of your concealment, including your former employees, Joe Kleiman, who now owns your business, and Meep Geese, who is responsible for smuggling in supplies to you and your family. They constantly risk not only your discovery, but their own. The seasons continue to change, as they always have. Another winter eventually gives way to the buds on the trees of spring. The birds in the canals continue their lives regardless of the city changing around them, welcoming the oncoming summer. For Meep Geese, the weight of the task remains. For nearly three years since the occupation began, you... Adrian Perfors have been working as the caretaker and the supervisor of the empty royal palace. You have watched with growing despair as your city has been transformed. But one morning you make a choice. You work for the occupier, but your sister's fiance Leo needs hiding. He's a dentist, but more importantly right now, he's also a Jew, and his family are already imprisoned in the concert hall they will likely disappear, like all those before them. Although the building is huge, with many empty rooms, you hide in behind your own office. You might live in the palace, but it isn't your house. Porters and cleaners still walk its halls. You don't know whom you can trust. One night, however, you take advantage of the building's grandiosity and host a secret wedding for your other sister. Leo can't join and spends the evening cuddling his dog, Buff, who you are also hiding. Together they listen to the sound of merrymaking in the adjacent room. 
It is a rare sound these days. The whole city somehow endures the fourth winter under occupation. Delivering food to the Jewish prisoners, gradually you have to bring less every night. Your father's old person's home has been empty for a while now, and in the concert hall prison, there are fewer to feed every day and every week. So many of your people are already gone. You remain, though, with your special permission slip. Until the day that they come for you, too. When they put you on the train near the zoo, crammed along with others being deported, you forlornly stare at the scratches in the wooden seats. You see names of people you grew up with, or knew, or loved, or hated. You had all been told you were going to labour camps and that it wouldn't be so bad. You had thought it best not to resist. But as you look at them, there's something final about how these names have been scratched, like they are the last hopeless attempts to ensure that not everything will be lost. Discontent in the city is increasing, noticeably, and especially amongst workers and students. People are talking about striking again, and some plans start to be made. As a student, you don't know if you will strike. You hate what has happened, the treatment of your city and its people, but until now, you've managed to get by fine, just keeping on going with your life, going to school, and obeying orders from German soldiers or the police, as they have stamped themselves on everything. A constant presence, wherever you go. As you cycle through the streets now, there are countless roadblocks set up around your city. For years, cyclists have had primacy on the roads in Amsterdam. Now, on your bike, you are regularly stopped, forced to give way to cars, these modern auto-beasts that are such a defining feature of today's greater German militant culture. Some people show their resistance by ignoring the stop signs, riding aggressively through, as Amsterdamers on bicycles have always done. A friend of yours disappears for months, and you are so scared. Has she been taken or fled? You can find no reason for either. And one day she reappears, and you cry with relief. But she doesn't linger on a reunion. As she quickly hugs you, she pushes into your hand a note with an address and a time on it. She whispers that you must memorize it and destroy it as secretly and quickly as possible. As you watch her walk away, the fear rises up in your throat, and it comes out in a stifled groan to yourself. The time and the address take you to a house in the city's west the following day. It is raining as you approach, and you worry that you memorized it wrong. But as you come up to the red brick building, you notice that the green door is slightly ajar. You push it open and close it behind you. Walking in and up some narrow, steep stairs, 
you are taken through another door at the top, which leads to a small, dark living room, the curtains on all the windows being drawn and a single lamp in the corner providing the only light. It feels dusty. You make out some couches and a coffee table between them, supporting a host of ashtrays and empty mugs. There are two people on one of the couches and your friend stands behind them. She smiles warmly at you, but does not greet you beyond that. One of the people on the couch tells you to sit down. They are in the resistance, or a part of whatever that really is. They originally wanted your help just in delivering some papers to a town on the coast north of the city where you were born. It's a three-hour bike ride away, and they wanted you to leave tomorrow. But today, a Jewish man who has been hiding needs to escape immediately, and there is a house in the same town where they will hide him. You know the way, right? Yes? You must escort him. Tonight. You want to say no. You saw some of the beatings and the punishment that the Germans hand out against those who disobey or defy them. If they catch you, you may even be executed. You agree though, because your friend is there and she doesn't stop staring at you the whole time that they are talking to you. And besides, saying yes will get you away from this rebel house sooner and the near overwhelming fear you have from just being here. Maybe you can get out of this, just not turn up. But then they will be waiting for you and will probably be caught and probably killed. They give you some other information to memorize and then you leave. It's getting dark and raining even more heavily outside. As you ride through the city, you look constantly for any option, any opportunity that can get you out of this. There are none. You must first fetch another bike for the escapee, along with a forged identity card for them, one without a J on it. Walking with the second bike, keeping to the darkest shadows you can find, you reach the appointed spot on the very outskirts of town. Out of a small copse of trees, a man and his dog emerge and approach you. He stops a bear two feet away, looks you in the eye, and nods. You worry that it is a trap, but the fear in his eyes tells you that he has the same concern. You can tell he is extremely nervous. Setting off on the three-hour ride in the wet, neither of you says anything. The man holds his dog close to his chest as he rides. After about 30 minutes, you ask his name. Leo, he mumbles. You ask about the dog, but you cannot hear his response. So you just put your head down and keep pedaling silently into the cold, rainy darkness. You're listening to the crash of the sea and the rain outside, sitting in your living room and staring into the fire. This is the last of the wood. The fire will be embers soon, and you will not be able to fuel it anymore. Like you have all day, and for all of the last several months, you worry about when winter comes, when you will really need fuel. 
You know that the people are coming to you in need. You got the message earlier and you regretfully agreed to it. You want to help them, but things are so tough now. How are you meant to feed one more person, an illegal person coming to hide in your basement? They pay money for information on Jews and others who they say are criminals. Here's one coming to stay at your house. There's a soft knock on the door. You get up from your chair and move slowly to open it. Before you stand two bedraggled and soaking wet people, a young man and a young woman. You want to let them straight in, of course, the poor things, but you have to make this stand. You tell them that you need payment. They say they don't have anything, but you know that this man is fleeing for his life and will have anything of value that he owns on him. You will not let them in otherwise. Eventually, he reaches into his cloak and pulls out some jewellery, which he hands over. You take it and stand aside as he enters. The girl looks at you in disgust. She doesn't understand. She probably doesn't have children or parents who will struggle to survive the coming winter with no fuel. They too have very little to eat. You stay outside in the rain out of principle. After Leo hands over his jewelry, you cannot believe this man demanding payment to hide him. So you spit on his doorstep and walk away. You want to run to your parents' house and tell them, but you cannot. They cannot know. You are in the resistance now. Information can mean death. Over the next months, you do more and more with ever greater risk Usually it is delivering newspapers, messages, or documents. Like recently, a man named Adrian Perfors gave his identification papers up to be used by the resistance for the creation of forgeries. It's made you appreciate all the small things that people do. If you are to succeed against the Nazi occupation, it will take these countless defiant acts. Hopelessness is never far away, and the battle that your hope and optimism wages in your mind leaves you constantly near or at breaking point. But you continue. Your involvement and the extremity of your tasks increase. Once you drive a getaway car when one of your comrades assassinates a collaborator, neither of you speak from the moment she gets back in the car to when you ditch it and pedal away from each other inconspicuous on your bikes with no rubber around their wheels, just like everybody else. One day, not long after, you are at the office of one of the illegal printing presses in the town centre, along with the small staff who produced the anti-occupation newspaper and pamphlets. When without warning, the door crashes in, and black uniformed soldiers come striding in, One of your colleagues stands up, just in reaction. The first soldier in the room raises his pistol and shoots him in the head. His body crumples and crashes to the floor in front of you. Now nothing else exists in your mind but the fact of his lifeless form seeping blood 
that slowly trickles down the slanted floorboards. When the world at large comes back into focus, you realize that they have lined you all up and are forcing you to your knees. In your mind somewhere, you know what is happening, but you do not truly recognize it until the first of you is executed. Systematically and in order, a bullet is put through the head of each person in the line before you, and you now hear your own sobs getting louder, starting to gurgle out of your mouth. With a bang, the person next to you collapses, face first, on the floor. An acrid and sour smell hits your nostrils, and the last thing you feel is the heat radiating off the barrel of the gun held behind you. The resistance is becoming more and more active, more violent. The occupation in response has become harsher, the German soldiers stationed here reacting more and more brutally to any perceived defiance. They are under pressure too, but they are also used to killing and destroying now. It comes easily after four years. As an ethnic Dutch Amsterdamer, it starts to directly affect you much more greatly than in those first years. Food is much scarcer. The newspapers often carry headlines reporting treasonous murders or violence against Nazi officials, or buildings, or trains and infrastructure. You read about the punishment, the consequences for what these terrorists do. The Nazis enact retribution killings, where scores of random, uninvolved people will be taken out and mown down as a payment for terrorism. Stupid resistance, you think to yourself. Innocent people die because they cannot just endure, cannot just accept German rule. You have made no money this summer trying to sell flowers and anything else at the market. Food stamp rations have been cut, and you're hungry for pretty much the whole day. In the evening, more and more people are starting to forage for scraps from the rubbish bins outside the big houses. You are thinking about food, when you notice a lady walking along. She looks like she is trying not to hurry. You don't know what it is, but something just seems strange about her. It is not obvious, but you suspect that she is hiding something under her jacket. You wonder what and why. Maybe it is food. You decide to follow her for a bit, but she doesn't go far. She disappears into the doorway of one of the houses only a block down the canal. You stand outside it for a while and continue to think about food. In that house... Hiding upstairs, you hear the shuffle of footsteps. You hold your breath, but quickly recognize them as being the steps of Meep Geese. For two years, your heart has skipped a beat whenever hearing anybody moving towards the bookshelf that conceals you and your family's secret hiding spot. You dread the day that those steps are heavier, angrier, and there are more of them. The bookshelf slides a little open, and some small packets of dried meat emerge into the annex. Listening to the BBC Home Service and Radio Aronia, the resistance broadcast from the Dutch government in exile, on a poor and now illegal radio, you hear reports that the Russians have broken through in the east. 
You don't know what this means. The commentators and analysts say that the Germans will now lose. The occupation will end. You are not so sure, but you hope and pray that it is true. One morning, trying to sell flowers at the market, an SS man and two Dutch policemen walk towards you and stop you roughly. They've seen you at the market. They get right in your face and you don't know why. They want to know if you've seen anything suspicious. In particular, they are looking for one lady who they say they think works around here. They describe her and you know it is the lady who you thought was hiding something in her coat. Your face must give it away. They demand to know what you know. Where did she go? How many times have you seen her? Which building does she go into? Do you know? You choose to stay silent. But suddenly and with fury, one of the Dutch cops punches you right in the stomach. All the air leaves your body and you double over, sucking hard to get some of it back. Tears stream down your face. He grabs you by the collar and drags you back up to look him in the eye. You feel your nose is running and you also feel pathetic. The other cop has turned his back on the scene and the one holding you asks if you want some more. You give up and point behind you, over the canal and at the house where you'd seen the lady go. You tell them the house number. Before leaving, they smile and joke, and one of them pushes some guilders into your hand and ruffles your hair, before they turn and walk away. Winter is here again, and you are starving, and you are freezing. People of all classes are scouring the city for scraps and for wood, or anything to burn. Nobody has any fuel, it seems, and your house is never warm. Every day you learn of neighbours, children and elderly usually, who did not survive the night. There was no selling chestnuts for you at the market this winter. There simply are no chestnuts to sell, or much of anything, actually. Every day gets more and more desperate. Eventually, you join the thousands of others who start weakly making their way out of town further and further in search of something to eat. Tulip bulbs provide some of the only sustenance available, and they have nearly all been scavenged by now. Each night, you shiver yourself into a hungry sleep, or you pass out from the cold. You begin to doubt that you will wake up the next morning. And one morning, you don't. You have become one of the 4,000 victims of the hunger winter in Amsterdam. The terrible winter cold is finally starting to relent. You are meep geese, and nearly six months have passed since you looked up from your desk and saw a gun pointed at your face, a German SS man smiling behind it, flanked by Dutch policemen. That day, Otto Frank and his family, and the others in hiding, were all taken from the secret annex. You have no idea how they found out. Nobody will tell you anything about where the families were sent. You hope that they are together. Something sorrowful inside you tells you that they are not. 
You only managed to not be taken prisoner and executed because you noticed from his accent that the arresting officer from the SS was from your hometown in Austria, which simply amazed him. He let you go, but not before chastising you for helping a bunch of Jews like Otto Frank and his family and the others who had all counted on you. You only wish that you had done better. You were ordered not to return to the building. All the possessions in the house were to be collected and sent to families in need in Germany. But just in time, you defied these orders and returned to salvage what you could. You hold in your possession all the things remaining of Otto Frank and his family in Amsterdam. Every day you pray and hope that you can return these things to them. Especially the diary of Otto's daughter, Anne, which you have refrained from reading. Every time you look at it, you burst into tears. You hate being a policeman. Before the war, you loved it. Now you have done things, hurt people, and followed orders that you will never forget or truly be able to justify to yourself. You have not only stood and watched as families have been pulled from hiding spaces and defiant citizens brazenly shot down in the street, but you've rammed down doors, helped in investigations, sat behind the wheel and driven scores of people between prison and train depot. It's too late to do much. The damage is done. You will have to live with this forever. You suppose it is best just to try to get through, but you hate waking up, hate going to work. You hate some of your colleagues too now, former brothers in arms who have taken to the oppression like ducks to water. The limits of their authority over the people of Amsterdam have not stopped increasing, and they love it. Today, your job is blocking off bicycle garages. The rubber from the tyres is needed for the war effort. As you stand there, people run towards you, realising what is happening and pleading to be allowed in to get their bikes. You put your head down and walk away from them, allowing them to retrieve what is theirs. That's the real Amsterdam way. The law and authority are supposed to be things of guidance, not force and oppression. You don't care anymore, and you only wish that you could walk away from it all. Whoever you are, they will never find out exactly how much or exactly what each of you has done or not done as any one of the thousands of people who choose to resist in ways great and small. All the actions and inactions of those who choose defiance over submission will remain forever obscure to the oppressors. So they begin to punish you for the worst of what you may have done, regardless of whether you or anybody actually did it. The retribution will now be directed towards everybody and anybody. Besides being the banker of the resistance, you, Wally Van Hull, will be given other nicknames, such as the Oil Man, for the way that you allow the resistance to function, lubricating all the cogs of rebellion with the money you and your brother Gijs steal from the bank. Uncle Pete is another name for the patriarchal role you play. But you, Wally Van Hull, you will never see the end of the occupation 
and the world will never know what has driven you to resist or the true extent to which you have. You are betrayed, and along with other resistance leaders, you are arrested and imprisoned in Harlem. When a high-ranking Nazi officer is killed by the resistance, they lead you and others out into the yard, and you pay for his life with each of your own. When the Canadian and the British allies finally arrive, the occupation is over, in name anyway. Its shadows will remain, of course, forever. The whole town erupts into a party just as much of the country has already seen. Now the Allied tanks roll down the streets that the Nazis have stained with so much blood over the last five years. Amsterdamers who had worked in cahoots with the oppressors get their comeuppance. As one of these, you are dragged through the crowd, slapped, hit, spit on. They have set up some chairs where other collaborators sit. You are all bruised, bleeding and dishevelled, the crowd surrounding you all in their contempt. People take turns to shave parts of your head, hacking away at it and driving the public shame home. One man draws a crude swastika on your forehead with red lipstick. The same is done to a man next to you, whom you recognise as your neighbour, a local policeman. He is bent over and spanked publicly as people laugh and shame him and all of you. This is what you get for having shared your bed with a Nazi or worked for and with the regime. Nobody asks you what led you to collaborate. Nobody cares if you did it because of belief in the Nazi cause or if it was the only way you saw to survive. You are sure that there are those here celebrating the Nazi defeat, spitting at you and cursing you, who also stood alongside you on the streets at the beginning of the occupation, right hand held up to the marching Nazi soldiers and tanks. You were not alone at those parades, but you are alone now. You will be a pariah in this town from this point on. For days you all celebrate, everybody who got through this, all having made decisions for yourselves and others, and managing to survive. It is a festive mood, but celebration cannot hide what you all know. You may have survived, too many did not. But then, even when it is over, the heavy and violent hand of occupation lingers. Some drunken German soldiers have been holed up for the two days since the liberation in a men's club overlooking the main city square, drinking themselves to angry excess. Nobody knows that they are there, and they drunkenly choose to fire a machine gun into the celebrating crowd assembled below. You all scatter, each seeking shelter behind anything you can. In a split second, you choose to hide behind a bench rather than a lamppost, even though it is further away. That's what the occupation has been. Choices. You made either the wrong choices, or you made the right choices. And you either survived or you didn't. Those of you who survived may well have done so, 
for the wrong reasons. And those of you who died may very well have done so for reasons right and noble. You will all leave the war in the past now. But those choices, your choices under occupation, will be with you and with your city forever. The defeated German soldiers kill 32 people on the square. When they are arrested, they are sent back to Germany and never tried for the attack, nor heard from again. When Queen Wilhelmina II returns after the war and arrives in Amsterdam, she waves to the crowd from the balcony of the royal palace, which Adrian Perfors had kept safe from Nazi hands, engaging in his own little acts of rebellion. She is proud of the city, having heard stories of all the things that have taken place during the last five years. To immortalise what she sees as the spirit that Amsterdam had shown, in how it went on strike, how it protested, helped and hid others, organised and engaged in resistance. For all of this, she endows it with a new motto, which will be attached to its coat of arms. The motto is, Heroic, Determined, Merciful. Many people don't know what to think about this, because the truth is that under occupation, the city was all of these things, and it was none of them. The Nazis occupied Amsterdam for 1,817 days. The Netherlands suffered around 7,900 military deaths in World War II, and 198,000 civilian deaths, of whom around 106,000 were victims of the Holocaust, the majority of these coming from Amsterdam. The Jewish Amsterdamers who disappeared and never returned from the concentration camps made up roughly 10% of the city's population. Over 300 years' establishment of Sephardic and Ashkenazi cultures in Amsterdam was destroyed over the course of the five years of occupation. The city's identity would never be the same, and the depth of Jewish cultural influence has not recovered since. For those who returned, fewer than 5,000, their freedom from horror delivered them into a city in full celebration. Nobody could comprehend what they had endured in the concentration camps, especially given that everybody in the city had suffered in some way. People were happy the war and the occupation were over. They wanted to move on. But returning Jews found themselves in a place that had eradicated them from its identity. On top of that, and quite unbelievably, the city administrators fined Jewish tenants for late payments on their rent, a bureaucratic nightmare that was not compensated for or recognised by the city until 2016. It is impossible to know exactly how many people took part in resistance to the Nazis, but around 300,000 people are thought to have gone into hiding around the country, assisted by up to 200,000 people. Resistance could also have meant helping those being hunted to escape, producing, printing and distributing anti-Nazi propaganda, or even just defying direct orders from German police on the street. 
Otto Frank was the only surviving member of those who hid in the secret annex at the top of his office building. Upon their capture, everyone had been split up. His daughters Margot and Anne both died in Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, shortly before its liberation by Allied troops. Upon Otto's return to Amsterdam, he was given the goods that Miep Gies had salvaged. Amongst these was his daughter's now-famous diary. Although Wally van Hull did not survive the occupation, his younger brother Gijs did. He would become the mayor of Amsterdam, and in the 1960s came to represent the establishment authority against whom Amsterdam's liberal youth movements of that later era would rail. Adrian Perfors, caretaker of the royal palace during the occupation, would largely disappear from the historical record. His last act of resistance, when he heard the news that the Allies and the Liberation were coming closer, was to fly an orange flag from atop the palace. Amsterdam's coat of arms still carries the motto, heroic, determined, merciful. Thanks for listening to Stuff What You Tell Me. A big thank you to everybody for listening to our work, sharing it with your friends and your enemies and your frenemies. A big thank you to Jesse Cohen and also to everybody whose work we use coming from freesound.org, the samples of which all went into the production of this episode. You can find a full list on our website. You can support the show by sharing our work, talking about it, leaving reviews, and also recommendations on podcast fan groups. If you like, you can also support us through Patreon and PayPal, the links for which you can find on our website. That is www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com, along with show notes and other episodes. It's difficult under pressure. Mark, be pithy. We didn't bring in an Irishman for no reason. I, the, the pithy is pitifully difficult. That was some weird. That was some bit of weird stuff. This has been a production by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani.